Hello, I'm Kirk Kerna. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And welcome to episode 10 of Great American Novel Podcast. This is our last episode of season one. And we've got some exciting news about books that we'll cover in season two later on. But this episode, we are talking about what great American novels, Scott. The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. This is a novel that we, I think, I think you and I are probably heavily invested in for a number of reasons, not the least of which is it is a novel that gives you the travel itch. It makes you want to go and live abroad and live the lifestyle of an expatriate and go to pot. But there's a lot of background to the novel that I think you and I might agree there's a lot of background to the novel that sometimes gets in the way of appreciating why it is a great American novel. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just go ahead and for readers who haven't read the book in a while, Scott, you want to give us just a quick plot overview? Sure. In a way, it reminds me, Kurt, giving a quick overview of the book of when I first read it in high school. And one of the things I would say about most Hemingway is 16-year-olds usually are not prepared to understand him or appreciate him. So I said, well... There's people hanging out in Paris. Jake Barnes, who's a World War I vet and foreign correspondent, uh, and his, his rich friends, and not even rich, but people who live as if they're rich, come. And it's this whole expatriate scene in Paris, and then a group of them, they're all revolving around this woman, Brett Ashley, and they all go to Spain and to Pamplona and the bullfights and the fiesta. And then there's trips to go fishing and a whole lot of bad things go on as all these men kind of rotate around Brett Ashley, kind of as it's put in the novel by her fiance, like she's Cersei and they become swine as they circle around her. And as a kid, I said, well, nothing happens. They, they hang out and drink. They go to this other place. They go to some bullfights and then he goes fishing and then he goes off to the beach. Nothing happens. Of course, everything happens. And that's one of the great things about the novel. But, but you're right in that as we go into Hemingway's background a little bit, it is impossible to discuss Hemingway's work without discussing his biography. But there's always a problem of spending too much time, energy, and effort on the biography and not focusing enough on the works that he wrote themselves. It's a deep, deep conundrum talking about anything with Hemingway, uh, but especially so with this novel, because... The genre we are dealing with is what is called a Romana clay or a novel with a key, which means it is a novel that is based on real life people. Usually it means a novel that the audience is going to recognize. Now, that's right. not necessarily the case with The Sun Also Rises. People that the characters, the famous characters are based on enjoyed a certain celebrity afterlife after the novel right. became institutionalized. I mean, some of these people were kicking around in their 70s and 80s going to Hemingway conferences 50 years after the novel was published, telling stories. And that's, that's part, of the, part of the fun of the book. But with Hemingway, you know, we really do struggle to separate the writer from the art. And I think in this episode, we really need to focus on the art more. However, we do need a basic overview of who Ernest Hemingway was and why he ended up in Paris in the 1920s in the capital of the modernist literary movement. So Scott, give us just a little bit of background on him, and then I will jump in and interrupt you with uh, whatever points I find salient. 
So it's born in July 1899, Oak Park, Illinois, which is now just part of greater suburban Chicago. It was kind of a small town not far from Chicago back in the turn of 19th to 20th century. Uh, had a very artsy, controlling mom who was a Christian scientist and a father who was a doctor and was uh, pretty clearly suffering from some kind of clinical depression. And if you think that's a interesting stew for, for a family to be raised in, I think you're right. And I think you can see a whole lot of both parents in Hemingway, um, the, you know, the kind of artistic temperament, belligerence from his mother, the depressive, um, so on from his father. He avoids college, which they insisted he go to, instead goes to work for the newspaper in Kansas City. He's kind of excited about the adventure of World War I, and it's always amazing how little reality young Americans had regarding that war, how brutal it had been. And they all saw it as this big adventure to go off to. Fitzgerald and Faulkner, Hemingway, uh, E. Cummings, all these guys are excited about going to the war instead of realizing how incredibly vicious it had been. But he joins Red Cross Ambulance Corps. He's sent to the Italian front, and a week before his 19th birthday, he is blown up with over 230-odd pieces of shrapnel to his legs, groin, head. Uh, for a long time, the story of how that happened gets exaggerated and played up. And then he gets completely denied. So some scholars have done a great job of actually finding the medical files and saying, you know, a lot more of it's true than people supposed was true, but maybe not some of the more exaggerated sections of it are. In the hospital there, he falls in love with a nurse who's seven or eight years older than him. And he thinks they're going to get married. We don't really know if she ever thought that or not, although some of her letters seem to imply that she's at least letting him think she's on board. Agnes von Kurowski. But when he finally, still limping and on crutches, heads back to the United States after uh, almost a year in the hospital, the Dear John letter is waiting for him, and she's married within a few weeks after that. And so he bounces from this woman who's older than him to another woman who's quite a bit older than him pretty soon thereafter, Hadley Richardson, and they get married pretty quickly at the whirlwind relationship, head off to Paris, and these are the famous days of him meeting Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound and Scott Fitzgerald and all these people, and that he writes about so compellingly in a movable feast. And a part of this expatriate crowd, of course, are some of the ones like Duff Twisden and Harold Loeb that he writes about in. I, am I saying that right, Kirk? Is it Twisden or Twisden? I've always said Twisden, but I think Twisden is fine. Let's go with Twisden. You can edit this to make me sound smarter later or leave that, or leave it in. Yeah, Lady Duff Twisden and, and Harold Loeb and others who become part of the background for The Sun Also Rises. As he's writing The Sun Also Rises after these trips to Pamplona, he actually begins an affair with uh, Pauline Pfeiffer. And it's a lot of kind of back and forth. He leaves Hadley. He marries her, which lasts until the Spanish Civil War. And they had certain marital difficulties. And he, when he goes to Spanish Civil War, uh, Martha Gellhorn has kind of set herself up to come along with him as a another war correspondent. And she, of course, is one of the most prominent women war correspondents of that 30s and 40s time period. Uh, but she needs a bit of an end with all these people. And Hemingway provides that for her. With Martha Gellhorn, I think he bit off more than he can chew. And she's basically gives everything he typically gives to the wives right back to him. And so that marriage is falling apart by the time they both go off to World War II, where he meets Mary Welsh, who stays the Mrs. Hemingway until his bitter end in July of 1961, when he kills himself. 
And of course, his other books include Farewell to Arms in 29, Death in the Afternoon, a kind of meta-narrative discussion of bullfighting. It's really a discussion of modern literature. To Have and Have Not, 1937, his kind of Depression-era novel. And you've written, of course, a, a book on this one, uh, Kirk. For Whom the Bell Tolls, a Spanish Civil War novel, 1940, and The Old Man in Sea, 1952, which after which he wins a Nobel Prize in Literature. Now, we skipped a couple of the big, a couple of the flops and a lot of the incredibly important short stories. Those three collections of short stories that make up a lot of his work during that time come out during that same era as well. In Our Time, Men Without Women, and... Winter, winter Takes Nothing. Winter Takes Nothing. Thank you. Cherry title. Exactly. And, and, and again, he'll win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954. One of the things that any critic and any writer notices about Hemingway is he had to kind of go out and live an exciting life and have lots of experiences to have things to write about. So his experiences in World War I formed the basis for a lot of his short fiction and for A Farewell to Arms. His uh, time in Spanish Civil War leads to a, the worst thing he ever wrote possibly is the play, Fifth Column, and uh, but also his great novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. His trips to Africa lead to his Great stories, uh, Short Happy Life of Francis McComber and uh, The Snows of Kilimanjaro. His U-boat hunting in World War II, which for a long time everyone thought was just a scam to get gas rations for fishing. It turns out he took it very seriously and almost did well enough to get himself in trouble with that, which I find funny that he thought they could. And, and there was a legitimate threat. that a le- Legitimate threat think- and some legitimate sightings that helped the Navy. Yeah, yeah. Although if he'd actually caught one, I don't know that his rigged out pillar you know, bazookas and machine guns are not could have had much shot at a, at a U-boat. <laughs> yeah, his his plan was to hurl grenades in the open when they opened the latch, presuming he had that good of a name. Right, and that they would let him get that close and open the hatch to, <laughs> I guess, come out and talk to them and maybe buy fish or, uh, you know, do you guys get any good marlins? We've seen some nice ones down low. <laughs> Lands at D-Day repeatedly since they won't let him off the boat and he keeps cruising back and forth from the shore to the the ships, uh, and then of course has its adventures with French partisans and gets him in trouble. Later, it goes on later safaris, is in two plane crashes, is presumed dead from the first one. Two plane crashes in two consecutive days, which right. is one of the most amazing literary stories ever. And we should really just pause and say no human in history is more accident prone than Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. The, the skylight. And, and- Fitzgerald's house breaks open his head. He's his son accidentally shoots him in the leg with a little 22, you know, gun they used to kill sharks when they pull him on the pillar over and over and over again, bad things happen to this guy. And no author sort of physically took his lifestyle out on himself in the way he, that he did. And, you know, the sad long degeneration of Hemingway in the fifties that culminates in his Suicide, suicide only at the age of of 61 that that was some hard living there and you can see it in those final years it's very sad and we've always said we I say uh, as if you and I were back in the 50s writing this stuff out for people but the critical world has always said well it's alcoholism combined with the probably you know manic depression that you see that runs in his family and it is important to know that his father commits suicide his brother. His brother commits suicide. His granddaughter commits suicide. Probably his son Gregory does. It's called an overdose, but most people think it might also be suicide. And so it's clearly there's something running in the family that these days they probably do a much better job of diagnosing and helping them out. 
Fitzgerald and Faulkner, first time they start drinking, they kind of immediately become alcoholics. It does weird things to their psyche. They're constantly drinking to the point of unconsciousness. Hemingway is a guy who's a heavy drinker and a heavy drinker and a heavy drinker. And one day he looks up and he's past that line way back. And he had the size and constitution, unlike the other two, to kind of handle it until he gets older. Then it really hurts him. But there's been some good writing lately. And I'm thinking of yeah. Hemingway's Brain by a guy named Andrew Farrah that points out this is his behavior and examination of his pupils. Everything really points to, and given his more than a dozen diagnosed concussions, the, the thing that now we think of Muhammad Ali and all these NFL players and their, their mood swings. And, and I always mispronounce that. Let's give it a try. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That's not right. But CTE for short. And I, he makes a compelling case to me. Yeah. That's a great book, Hemingway's Brain. And it, and I think you read that and it feels in his uh, very learned analysis of, uh, of what's going on, that there was a sort of combination of factors, yeah. alcoholic dementia, but the brain damage and just kind of degenerated from there. And so as a warning, literary critics, we typically like to just have our English degrees and we'll read a little bit in some field and pretend we're experts. Yeah. This guy's actually a neurosurgeon, so he might yeah. have something to say about it. There's a very prescient line in The Sun Also Rises in which uh, a character says in about 35 years, I'll be dead. And if you do the math, 1926 plus 35, you come right to 1961. So it's- wow. There's a there's a sense from the start I think with Hemingway that he's living living on a short time. There's a lot of dealing with a sense of doom all the way through. He would go through these manic right. depressive periods. He does publish more posthumously than many fiction writers do alive. Movable Feast comes out, and how much of that is actually a memoir, and how much of it's romanticized or fictionalized memoir? Everyone decide for themselves because no one agrees. Islands in the Stream is edited from a large, sprawling manuscript that originally was going to be a huge war opus. Garden of Eden, the, there's an edited version and an unedited version in the Kennedy Archives. And under Kilimanjaro, originally published as he kind of poorly edited True at First Light, and the Hemingway Society requested that it be republished in a more scholarly edition, which is a bit more satisfying to my eyes uh, of under Kilimanjaro, this sprawling fictionalized journal he wrote during the that long uh, safari in Africa before the plane crashes he could never write or refine. But we're really talking about his book today, where he is firing on all cylinders. He is at the top of his game. He's served this apprenticeship of short stories, and then he starts working into this. And famously, it is his first novel. Sometimes people consider Torrent Spring. But that's a book that with Fitzgerald's help and planning, he kind of cranks out a brief humorous satire of Sherwood Anderson. Written, written after this one. Written after way. this one in about two weeks and how much of it Fitzgerald helps. Yeah. Probably not tight, but certainly plot. You get a feeling it comes out a lot of drunken back and forth between the two of them and Hemingway just types it all down to get him out of his publishing contract with the small publisher, Bonnie and Liverite, so that he can go to Fitzgerald's much more prestigious and lucrative Scribner and Sons. Yeah. I think it's very important to keep in mind that Hemingway was all of 25 and 26 when he wrote this novel. Right. He was just turning 26 uh, as he began it. He, here's, a, I, I think, a basic understanding of 
where Hemingway and members of his generation were in the early 1920s. If you look at Victorian literature, there's generally an effort to be morally progressive there. And the idea is that you are writing about characters, at least a main character, who is evolving towards some you know, advanced position, whether that's adulthood or whether that's business success or where that's sort of moral, moral purity. The modernists came along in, and I think largely as an effect of World War I, sort of the killing off of national idealism there, um, but also a lot of technological changes that were really bewildering to the culture in general. There's a general pessimism that became not only ingrained, but became fashionable. And I think that's an important thing. All of a sudden in the arts, it was not cool to be Victorian or, you know, evolutionary. It was more to be pessimistic and downbeat. And I think one of the immediate questions Hemingway faced as he wrote this novel is, why are you writing about a bunch of uh, drunken losers who are basically roaming through Europe, living on everybody else's dime. And just to give you a flavor of how controversial this novel was, I wanted to read you what Hemingway's own mother said about (laughs) Sun Also Rises. Now, I'm going to venture to say, Scott, that if you and I published novels, our parents would be proud no matter what they were about. But Grace wrote him, Grace Hall Hemingway, his mother, sent him a clipping of a negative review out of one of the Chicago papers. And she adds this, it's doubt, it is a doubtful honor to produce one of the filthiest books of the year. What's the matter? Have you ceased to be interested in loyalty, nobility, honor, and fineness of life? Surely you have other words in your vocabulary besides damn and bitch. Every page fills me with a sick loathing. If I should pick up a book by any other writer with such words in it, I should read it no more, but pitch it in the fire. So we're dealing with a break between generations here, between the Victorians and the moderns. And the moderns essentially look on the Victorians as absolutely incapable of of grappling with how the world has changed. That is a theme of so many of those wonderful Hemingway short stories that he wrote in the 20s as he was finding his voice, not the least of which is called Soldier's Home. So one of the things we want to recognize is it is both a book that helps establish what it means to write a modern and modernist novel, but it is also a generational book in the sense that it is establishing or speaking for a generation. And part of that is defined by the one of the two epigraphs of the book, which are the probably the most famous epigraphs of any literary novel. The first kind of explains the, the title a little bit coming from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I keep having Song of Solomon in my mind from our Morrison (laughs) discussion, but Ecclesiastes about the sun also rising. But the second is Gertrude Stein's quote that became kind of a criticor for this era of, of young people, which is you are all a lost generation. And Hemingway had actually originally titled this novel or briefly had thought of titling it A Lost Generation. So it's very important to keep in mind that it's a novel about a cohort that is meant to represent a certain demographic. 
Right. That was for many years until it was sort of taken up by the academics. It, it's appeal. It was, it's a youth culture book in the same way that On the Road or uh, even The Bell Jar is. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, in that that transition, one of the characters in the book, it has become very much one of the controversial characters of the book because he's the Jewish character, Robert Cohn, and there's uh, they use anti-Semitic cracks toward him upon occasion. He's not meant to represent Jewish people in the novel, but he's meant to represent someone who wants to hold on to the outdated codes of the previous generation while having it however he likes with the new generation. He, on the one hand, has to defend his honor. And if you say something nasty about his mother, he's going to knock you down. But on the other hand, he doesn't mind cheating with his first wife with this new girlfriend and then leaving her right before they're supposed to get married to go off with another woman. And so in his kind of hypocrisy and on the one hand, inability to accept the reality they're in, and at the same time, trying to take advantage of it, we see both sides. And it's exactly mirroring, I think, that transitional state you're talking about. Yeah. And Hemingway even delivers this characterization of him as a as a kind of Victorian by referencing his reading. Uh, Robert Kahn's fa- favorite book is by W.H. Hudson called The Purple Land. Right. And there's a great, great line in chapter two. This is an example of how this book is like young people saying to the older generation, to hell with your values. He says, The Purple Land is a very sinister book if read too late in life. <laughs> it, re- <laughs> it recounts splendid imaginary amorous adventures of a perfect English gentleman in an intensely romantic land, the scenery of which is very well described. For a man to take it at 34 as a guidebook to what life holds is about as safe as it would be for a man of the same age to enter Wall Street direct from a French convent, equipped with a complete set of the more practical Horatio Alger books. So he's basically saying these these people who want to believe in stable Victorian values just don't live in the real world as it is right. anymore. And Kurt, is this where our term purple prose comes from? Does it come <laughs> from that book? Uh, it could be because it is a romantic tale. And in a lot of ways, one way to understand The Sun Also Rises is this is his version of Ezra Pound's poem, Hugh Selwyn Mauberly, which is Pound's sort of generational twist away from the English tradition of poetry, which at the time was Edwardian and about as, you know, had, a, had as much relevance as, I don't know, maybe Ronald Reagan today. Right. And just saying, we've got to find a new voice and a new honesty and a new ability to grapple with the world as it is. Right. And Pound famously also writes poems about why you have to leave America, why, you know, how America doesn't appreciate artists, how stultifyingly conservative from an art standpoint it is. And it is, of course, what drives the expatriates from Britain and from Ireland and from the United States to form this large expat circle in Paris that's so famous. The other thing I guess we should say is this is coming after World War I, where the economy of Europe has been destroyed, particularly that of France and the United States, which only participates in the last two years and really even from a combat perspective, maybe 18 months of the war. The United States is stepping into that void and really starting to make some good cash. Now, it will lead to unwise practices 
that combined with a whole lot of other things means a lot of blank checks will bounce and will lead, of course, into the depression. But at this point, you're able to take a very modest income and live very high on the hog in the left bank of Paris. It's also the era of prohibition in the United States. And that is a big, big uh, sledgehammer of hypocrisy that many of these writers just could not abide. Many, you know, many of our most famous modernists are Midwesterners. And there are folks that sort of looked at the small town values, you know, that what what is supposed to make America great, all of those values that Grace Hall itemizes in her letter, which in a farewell to arms a few years later, Frederick Henry will turn around and say, these words are meaningless to me. Yeah. Because I have been to war and I have seen that it is just an end game of attrition, of survival. So I think one of the one of the big questions we have to ask is, and this will get us into a way of understanding what expatriation meant in the 1920s is, can we have a great American novel that does not take place in America? And we want to recognize right away that there is a whole tradition in American literature. Henry James called it the international theme. Yeah. And the idea is you as a representative of America, go abroad, live abroad. Your values as an American are tested by being in this quote unquote foreign situation. Now there's a huge difference between Henry James's international theme and yeah. Hemingway's. And again, it has to do with the historical rupture of modernity and the war. Henry James died in 1916. So for Hemingway's generation, Henry James is kind of an old fogey. There's a joke about Henry James's genitalia in the novel that is very famous. Supposedly, he was wounded in the groin in a bicycle accident. So, and it, well, and it kept him out of the Civil War, right? Because right. two, the two older brothers who were the ones who went off and had the great European education, yeah. William and Henry James, didn't fight in Civil War, but his two younger brothers did. But if you look at a novel like, or a novella like Daisy Miller, or a novel like The Ambassadors, the basic idea, even The Portrait of a Lady, the basic idea is that Americans, because we're, we were at the time such a new country, are, we were innocents. And Europe had a whole sophistication that was, a, was really, a, a, in a word, a synonym for how they dealt with amorality. Right. So in those earlier novels, you have a very innocent American going abroad and getting corrupted. Daisy Miller famously having to die of Roman fever because she yeah. went out without a chaperone. Here it is a quest to find in Europe, in the aftermath of the war, some kind of enduring rituals or some sort of sacramental motifs that are going to help you find a a moral grounding in a world that is changing too fast for us to really keep up with. Right. And that was one of the first questions we had when you and I first started talking about this podcast is, can expatriate novels really be part of this? Are they about American themes? And we started thinking of the history of them with James, Edith Fortin, uh, some of Nathaniel Hawthorne's works, uh, and all the writers will come later. And, I, and then we kind of said, you know, it is an important part of how do we intersect with the rest of the world. And Hemingway, of course, of all American 20th century writers, is the most international. Uh-huh. He is the one that when you go to other countries, they may or may not have all these other writers on our list, on their shelves. They're always going to have Hemingway. And in fact, the last 
20 years of his life until the Castro revolution, he was essentially considered a, a citizen of Cuba. And yeah. there's been a lot of great work lately on how he lost his American identity in those last two decades. And even in terms of his uh, language became more transatlantic or more international, we would say. Huh. So here we are with this novel and it starts off as as you said before a, a ramana clay can you think kirk of other novels last 20 or 30 years that are famous ramana clays and I, I kind of have a point i'm driving to i came up with primary colors yeah that's a great one i would say probably the most famous one maybe even more so than the sun also rises is uh, all of jack kerouac on the road basically yeah. any any beat literature is Romana Clay. And all of those people sort of made legends out of themselves for doing that. Romana Clays can be very controversial because obviously real life people are uh, usually pilloried in the form of a fictional person. I personally have always wished that some writer would do a Romana Clay that includes me, but it, it has not happened yet so far. Yeah, I think I'm a, a minor part of a character in uh, my friend David Zimmerman, one of my friend, my friend David Zimmerman, one of his books, but I'm not actually sure it's me or just some other guy who likes to go to lunch a lot. So, <laughs> you know, the danger is you look at primary colors and it's very big deal who, you know, who wrote it is originally written by anonymous. And it's about the Clintons, Bill and Hillary Clinton and some of their inside circle. And it's published during either during the Clinton years in the white house or right after that time. And the question, and you know, it was a big movie with John Travolta and Emma Thompson. The question is, is anyone still going to go out and buy that book? Yeah. Is it still on bookshelves anywhere? Is it still interesting after their cause celeb dies away? A good, another good example might be All the King's Men, which is mm -hmm. very clearly about a fictional version of Huey Long. Well, that book is still read, not because anyone really cares that much about Huey Long, but because the book is so well written. And the same for Sun Also Rises. You could have a book club, read this book, have no idea who any of the characters are in Paris in the 1920s. And it can be a very successful novel yeah. without any knowledge at all of the characters from Hemingway's life who more or less are transformed into the characters in this novel. The same can't be said for well, for some of the beat novels, not all of them, some of them are pretty successful and some of them are very bad and they're just... Some are very repetitious. I mean, it's basically yeah. the same storylines over and over. The flip side of that is I think there is an appeal in the Romana Clay and it's what imaginative literature or fiction struggles with is the, the notion that it's always more interesting if it actually really happened. And so they're almost... This novel no sooner came out than was getting out largely through gossip that came out of the, the left bank Montparnasse neighborhoods where all of these people were living and floated into the gossip columns of the day that these characters were based on real people. And like I said before, there became a sort of industry as Hemingway biography took off, trying to track down everything possible yeah. about this. Uh, there's a Recent book, maybe four or five years ago, called Everybody Behaves Badly, which is a, a line from the novel right? by a contributing editor of Vanity Fair named Leslie M.M. M. Bloom that goes into detail in a very saucy, sort of sexy way of telling the backstory of The Sun Also Rises 
for a new generation and making the point that that Hemingway was really transforming a lot of a lot of real life people into these fictional characters. So in the case of Brett Ashley, you had this Lady Duff Twisden who was only 33 when she knew Hemingway and died only about 12 years later, lived a very short and unhappy life. And then there's Brett's fiance, Mike Campbell in the novel is based on a sort of notorious guy named Pat Guthrie who never paid his bills. <laughs> but part of the appeal of these Romana Clay, Romanza Clay is that the idea that we as readers can actually go to the real life places where these events yeah. became. And I think one of the undeniable things we have to acknowledge about the popularity or the enduring popularity of The Sun Also Rises is it's it's a tourist guide. It yeah. allows you to, to, to take this book. I have done this. I did this as a student and I've done it as a teacher where you take folks and you meet there on the Boulevard Ross by right you know, right on the corner of the the three cafes there, the Dome, the Rotonde, and the Select, and you take them through all of these neighborhoods, and you show well, them all of the bars. And this, yeah, is- and one of one of my great memories from the Hemingway Society uh, meeting in or conference, I should say, held in Paris a few years ago, back when we had conferences where we could meet in person instead of over Zoom, was you taking a group of us around and showing us the places from the novel and and. Uh, as well as people's where Gertrude Stein lived, one of Hemingway's uh, apartments, uh, and so on. And yeah, it, it really is a place you can you can go, you can see, and and it does help in some ways really understand some of the things he's talking about in the book. Yeah, there's right down to there's a you know there's a moment where uh, Jake Barnes, our narrator, looks at a, a statue of Marshal Ney, one of the yes. historical French military figures. And you can go right to that point and look at the same statue. So it tells us it's kind of a bridge in time in a lot of ways. And, you know, the effect that the sun also rises had on many Americans was to make them want to go live abroad. And not that I want to just read other things uh, (laughs) for our whole discussion, but one of my favorite sort of obscure commentaries on on The Sun Also Rises comes from two years after its publication, about a year and a half, May 1928, from an article in Harper's called Babes in the Bouie. And it's a takedown of young Americans who would read The Sun Also Rises and go live abroad. And let me give you just a flavor of this. More than a year ago, a novel was published, which was destined to become the Bible of all callow cynics who were old enough to shave the down off their chins, but not old enough to vote. Men over 21 read the book and admired it, but the youngsters learned it by heart in deserting their families and running away from college immediately took ship for Paris to be the disciples of the new faith under the awnings of the Dome and the Rotone and the other sidewalk cafes. The book, needless to say, was The Sun Also Rises. And Ernest Hemingway, that brilliant black sheep from the Middle West, suddenly found himself the reluctant leader of a modern children's crusade. Now, we should emphasize that for all of this sort of contemporary appeal, The Sun Also Rises is also a novel that is is very literary in its use of symbols and motifs. And so at the same time that we go to these places as tourists, and that's a term that we want to kind of break down because Hemingway was not a big fan of tourism. 
We're also meant to recognize that all of the geography in this novel has a symbolic value and that it that it's pointing to deeper meanings that aren't necessarily obvious in the in the surface of the text. So yeah. Scott, tell us a little bit about what Paris would have represented, what this area, Montparnasse, the left bank, the the French quarter, well, it's not the French quarter, the left bank would have been known for as Hemingway's writing. Well, it's it's interesting in the novel, he doesn't really have Jake live where all the expats are, where all the artists are, but all the writers hang out there, all the poets, the caf- you know, the cafes are filled all day long with musicians, painters, actors, all, all kinds of people. And, and really famous people from all over the world are gathering there. Pablo Picasso, Salvador Dali, James Joyce, uh, eventually Beckett will end up being there, not to mention the American writers like eventually Fitzgerald, but Hemingway, Ford Maddox Ford, and all these different writers. And in fact, one of my favorite anecdotes, which I believe I got from the the five volume biography of Hemingway by oh, what? Michael Reynolds. Michael Reynolds. And it's really, to my mind, still the best. Although you, if you wave your hand during that time, three new biographies probably just came out. <laughs> that Michael Reynolds is pretty hard to beat. One of my favorite anecdotes from that is that Hemingway was living across the street from James Joyce when William Carlos Williams came to visit Joyce. And instead, he also calls on Hemingway. And then he is the one who circumcises Hemingway's eldest son who's born in Paris. And so that's a pretty great literary anecdote, I believe. <laughs> and yet, uh, one of the things that's interesting in the novel is our, our character, Jake, who, while he has connections to Hemingway, is very clearly not supposed to be Hemingway at the same time. Jake is among these people, but not really of them. We see Jake working full time. We see him paying his bills. We see him living in a different part of Paris and traveling over to the left bank and hanging out in some of those areas. But at the same time, he likes to go into the small and quiet cafes where he's not being bothered by the tourists and by all this. So, but it's also, you know, it's it's thriving nightlife and it's people in and out. You get a great sense of it when Fitzgerald character, Charlie Wells looks back on it and Babylon revisited talks about the constant partying and the Americans coming in and blowing money like crazy and, you know, spending a thousand francs to hear, a favorite song played by a, a bar's orchestra or something like that. And so it just kind of, I don't know, a certain kind of crazy hedonism and a certain mindlessness and an idea that in the, in the heat of a Paris summer night, you can just lose yeah. yourself completely. And it's, it's the way young people in colleges want to feel when they hit the weekend and they try to <laughs> go from party to party. It's not even the party, weekend, usually. Bar it's to bar, yeah. Every Thursday, night. Yeah, Thursday nights even. It's, it's the way they want to feel like it can go on forever and there's not going to be any repercussions. And so one of the things that's interesting about this book is that Hemingway isn't really touting that. In some ways, he's not completely disagreeing with Gertrude Stein. It's almost more repertorial where he says, well, you older people don't really see how it is, but some of your points are not invalid yeah. at the same time. And Jake is the guy. You know, for me, the whole novel is about Jake Barnes trying to find a sense of peace yeah. and a sense of stability. And one of the ways he tries to do that is through partying and hanging out with all these people. But he also learns over and over again in the novel, that's not good for him, given what he's dealing with. And we should probably talk about, and a lot of the early criticism focuses on this, but it doesn't make it wrong. I think it's just covered so well by Carlos Baker and by Philip Young and people like this, that it's become so de rigueur, but the nature of Jake's wound. Yeah. Don't you think it's about time you stopped lying to me? Am I going to be all right? 
there'll be certain after effects from your wound, that's to be expected. The important thing is that the shell fragment that entered your back missed your spine. So be able to walk, move about absolutely normally. However, go on. What I'm about to tell you is the most shocking thing a man has ever heard. You're going to be impotent. Impotent? It becomes clear very early on, early in the novel, uh, one of the first things we see Jake do is he's kind of bored roaming around and he picks up a prostitute named Georgette and they are riding off to a little bar, a little dance club. And she apparently makes a move on him and he declines and she says, well, what's the matter? And he basically tells her that, you know, he got hurt in the war. And then later on, we see a scene, and this becomes kind of the the bond between Jake and Brett, who are both wounded in very different ways. Early on, you question the point, well, if if they're so close, why can't they just be together and maybe they can find happiness together? Well, the reality is, is that Jake Barn is a man who has lost his penis in an airplane crash. Never quite comes out and says that, but I think it emphasizes the idea that for most of modernism, it focuses on this notion of lost. What is lost? The lost yeah. generation. Uh, there's been a lot of work done about how for this generation, the idea of some sort of sexual maiming uh, or impotence even becomes a driving force of, right. of male characters. And so when we talk about Jake, we have a man who is certainly capable of love, but cannot you know, consummate it. He's capable of lust. And Hemingway in a letter famously explains that his testicles and all those hormones and all that desire is still there. Yeah. But the apparatus for delivering through, you know, following through is not there. And so it's even more harmful uh, in in a way to him psychically. Yeah. He's not castrated. And that's an important thing that we want to emphasize is that he is, he has been denied his manhood. And that makes it that, in a sense, makes him a kind of walking dead figure. He can never, right. he can never have a normal, normal life. Well, and I think you really bring up a good point. Hemingway or Fitzgerald's friend Edmund Wilson did this novel and many Hemingway works a great disservice early on. Although he did champion some of his work, he also says all of Hemingway's women are either angels or whores. There's not really much in between, which is very much not true and very incorrect in many ways. And certainly Lady Brett, who's had so many people come out against her and dislike the character in so many ways and not show sympathy for what she's been through, which is she has her, the the love of her life dies. The next guy she marries is so rattled from the war that he keeps a loaded pistol under the pillow and will wave it at her. She has to wait every night until he goes to sleep so that he can, she can take cartridges out of the revolver. And she's had a pretty tough time. She's also a bit of an alcoholic in the novel. It's it's pretty hard to argue. She isn't one. A lot of times students talk about how much drinking goes on and you remind them. Yeah, but they are on a vacation at a kind of fiesta where drinking is a big part of the fun of that fiesta. It's like taking a trip to Bourbon Street to see a college football bowl game. They're not going to Bourbon Street. It's not called that because they're going there to drink fruit juice. and not called Bible Street. Yeah, it's definitely about the alcohol. But then, of course, you do understand that Brett and Mike particularly kind of overachieve even compared to the rest of them when it comes to the drinking. Again, it's a search for a grounding in your own values. And I think we probably have all known people like uh, Brett Ashley. That's part of the appeal of her character. 
And I think it activates in, especially in male readers, a desire to save a woman in danger. And the flip side of that is what we really want is to be able to control this person and make them do things so we, so our masculinity does not does not feel un- under attack. I was going to say, you see the cruel mechanism that Hemingway uses to make it where they can't be happy together. At some level for her to feel valued and worthy, she has to be able to have sex with someone. Yeah, And she's always looking for a new conquest because that's the way that she makes herself feel like she's complete or accomplished or worthy or whatever it is she's looking for. Jake, on the other hand, only wants her, but He's not going to be able to ever satisfy her in that way. She's, and they've tried. Wow. You know, she says, we don't need to go through that hell again. And so you see that, the sadness in that. I missed you. It didn't work out. Being away from you was worse than being here. It wasn't exactly easy for me. Don't we pay for all the things we do, though? When I think of the hell I've put people through, I'm paying for it all now. Don't be silly. Do you mind if I ask you to do something? Of course not. Will you kiss me just once more before we get there? Mike Campbell, who, uh, again, wounded in his way, uh, has become a thorough alcoholic and a bankrupt. How do you go bankrupt two ways, you know, Gradually and then suddenly, yeah. He somehow is just able to kind of let go of her transgressions somewhat. He doesn't take it personally in this. He does with Robert Cohn briefly, and then he kind of gets over it. And she and the novel ends with probably this two will get back together again. It's happened before. But it's there is a sympathy for this. There's not when Jake ever stands in moral judgment, he then has to take a step back and go, yeah, and look how I'm acting towards Robert. Look how I'm acting towards this. And there's a, I don't know, there's a level of humanity and empathy in the novel that I think many readers don't pick up on. Yeah, uh, Bill Gordon's overlook. a great example of that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And we have to ask ourselves, if, if they did not lose their values, we would have no plot. I mean, that's right. the, that's the whole area we're doing here is after after a traumatic event, how do you cope and how do you deal with things? And again, all of these characters, to put it in contemporary terms, are are committing a lot of self-harm as they as they go about. Yeah. And again, we've probably all known people who've just acted crazy after after uh, certain events in their lives. And you're like, why can't you just pick up the pieces and move on? And the reality is, is that people don't cope that way. You know, Kurt, I, I started off saying as a 16 year old, I could I didn't get the book. When I read it again in college and I'd acted like an idiot over huge crushes or infatuations, and I'd had to, in the the words of the old Southern writer, the heart uh, pulled out and stomped flat a couple of times. Suddenly the book made so much more sense to me. Yeah. And I was amazed how much Hemingway learned in those five years uh, in between. And I do think that's a lot of it as well. And you asked me, what does Paris represent? So I'll throw it back to you. What does Spain represent? Well, I think Spain... uh at least if we take it apart from the way that they experience it. Spain is uh, presented in the novel as the land of ritual and the land where one can get back into contact 
with sort of natural values as opposed to the sort of urbanity of the city of light. So we we move into Spain and we have a a little fishing excursion, which is uh, almost always going to happen in in Hemingway. And people always wonder, well, why why do we have to have sports in in fiction? And the reality is, is for, you know, a writer like Hemingway, sports uh, is an arena in which you perform your value system. And so in this scene, not as much as maybe in other stories about fishing, such as Big Two Hearted River, most notably, but there is an effort to get into contact with the quote unquote natural way we should behave in the environment and to respect the natural world and the laws of the natural world. Now, the most controversial aspect of the novel, I would argue today is not the drinking or the promiscuity, but the question of what the bullfights represent. Because yeah. readers today are just not inclined to necessarily support that long history of animal cruelty. But in Hemingway's time, the bullfights would have been seen as a long-running tradition, a sport in which a blood sport in which one demonstrates those values of uh, heroism, but also artfulness. There is a artful way to perform in the bull right. in the bull ring. And that's embodied by this 19-year-old rising star of a matador named Pedro Romero that everybody is swooning over. And so in the middle of the novel, when these Americans begin pouring into Pamplona, and I think it's important to emphasize that when Hemingway first went to Pamplona in 1923 at the recommendation of Gertrude Stein, there were not that many Americans who were aware of what the fiesta was the Festival of San Fermin, and really what it represented to Spanish culture. And so he went three years in a row. The third year was when he took Duff Twisden and uh, Pat Guthrie and a couple other friends, including his, his also took his wife, who gets written out of the novel, which is an interesting, yeah. <laughs> interesting sort of excision. But, you know, Hemingway very much valued the he he did appreciate the pageantry of the bullfight, but he also recognized that in the matador's moves, in the style of performance, there was an analogy there to what the artist does. Right, and that's why you always see him talking about cheap moves or you know sort of fake heroism or playing up to the audience, performing for the audience. Something that Hemingway would later be accused of doing in creating this popper persona that sort of ate him alive in later years. But the bullfight represents a historical ritual in which we can find some security from the changes. And the question becomes is how do we avoid corrupting those rituals? Uh, The church offers rituals, but the church doesn't appeal to these these expatriates because they see it as that uh, associated with that Victorianism again. So there's a search for new rituals and in the ring, Jake is aware of it. It introduces a very important term that becomes so crucial to our understanding of Hemingway, which is the notion of the aficionado. Yeah. Do you want to define what that term means and what it represents in the novel? So that's now a part of our everyday English lexicon. If, if Kirk had an Xbox and was really great at playing, and I don't know really much about contemporary video games, so let's, let's just make one up, you know, the big Two-Hearted River fishing game on his Xbox, we would say Kirk is an Xbox aficionado, and it's, it's become very common. But of course, in 
in the novels world and using this term for someone who's heavily involved with bullfighting, it means you're an aficion. You're someone who is believes in the purity of it. You believe in it at its, in all its best ways, what it's supposed to be. Not someone who wants to cheapen it or make it casual for everyone, but rather you're, you're kind of an ambassador for it. And also you're part of a community that holds the standards. So one of the things that you see with Jake is that he's the guy in Paris of all the expatriates who speaks French. He speaks Spanish. He has a relationship with Montoya in the hotel, and he's at a special hotel known for having bullfighters and that where the people who are in the know. And Hemingway's whole life loved being in the know. He always yeah. worked hard to be in the know. And it shows up with Jake in this novel. And, of course, one of the saddest scenes in novels when Jake kind of falls off his own idea of where he should be morally Montoya kind of judges him and it makes Jake judge himself. And it's a very sad sequence when he realizes he's failed Montoya and what Montoya saw in him. Well, and that's the value that Jake, that Jake destroys as he betrays his own aficionado right. sort of commitment to those values by bringing Brett and Robert Kahn and, and Mike Campbell into this where they corrupt it. I mean, the end of the novel involves Brett having an affair with Pedro Romero, right? which she ultimately walks away from recognizing that one of the greatest lines ever, she's not going to be one of these bitches that ruins children. Yeah. Uh, After she's had her way with him for yeah. a few weeks, and then he wants her to grow long hair. And well, he wants married. her to be a traditional woman, recognize, yeah. and she understands the modern, that that identity doesn't exist for her anymore. Exactly. And we see also, just sticking with the bullfight metaphor, we get some interesting scenes where they talk about how during the running of the bulls, they bring in all these steers, which are castrated bulls, to gentle the other bulls, keep them from fighting each other, and they kind of serve as a barrier between them. And I I should tell you, Kurt, when I was teasing our friend Alan Josephs, who's a well-known Hemingway scholar, and who really got into Hemingway because he was an American bullfight scholar first mm-hmm. about the bullfights. He goes, we know that Berger at Wendy's never had a chance. These guys get to take someone with them. So <laughs> that's probably what we're saying about the bullfight. Yeah. Jake, of course, the, the reference to Jake being caught among these other people swirling around Brett, who all, you know, Mike, who's actually engaged to her, Jake's who's in love with her. Uh, Robert, who's infatuated with her in a kind of churlish way as well. You see how Jake's caught in the middle and you can feel the sympathy. So Jake pretty clearly uses, allows the relationship to go forward because he could have blocked it. There are ways he could have headed it off, given that he could speak. and had. he's trying to do for, he's trying to do for Brett what she's asking of him. Yeah. You know, that's part of their strange codependency that they have. Yeah, anything she asks, he'll do. Well, you know, he doesn't have enough strength to resist her. He's so in love. And I'm going to make an analogy that will get get me kicked out of Hemingway studies, but Jake is essentially Ducky from Pretty in Pink in this novel. He is... Uh, I'm sorry, I've got... The Hemingway Journal on the phone. They they said he licensed. <laughs> they canc- cancel my membership. Yeah. <laughs> this I- this idea of the male best friend who ends up in indulging the best friend, you right. know, allows her to violate her herself. Yeah, and then Pedro kind of becomes his surrogate. Yeah, and of course, and this is where we see Robert. And let's talk briefly about the anti-Semitism in the novel. Comes down to. People don't like Robert because of his personality. Yeah. Because he's whiny, because of how he treats people, and he's kind of hypocritical. 
and he's always trying to insinuate himself. But of course, they express it this like through using pejorative language toward the fact that he is Jewish. Yeah. And one of the hits against the novel is it is anti-Semitic. Now, Hemingway would later express regret that he had not to Harold Loeb, who at some point capitalizes on the fact is Robert Cohen and goes around and gives talks on it and writes books about it. But in other places, he says, I wish I had made him, you know, something else. Yeah. It's just very difficult to understand. You, you have to read that historically and just recognize that that those kinds of references to Jews and, and the black people. The, yes. The I mean, the N word pops up a lot in this novel as well, that those sort of racist stereotypes were commonly trafficked. And, you yeah. know, Fitch, Fitzgerald, we struggle with this in Fitzgerald society too, about Myra Wolfsheim and the Great Gatsby is yeah. that you know, is that a Jewish stereotype? Well, it very clearly is. Yeah. But I think that one of the things with Robert Kahn is more so than, it's almost like the Jewish, the Jewish comments are kind of the surface insult. Yeah. But the real deeper insult is this idea that Kahn is a romantic and that he, he essentially is trying to do with Brett what Pedro Romero does is he yeah. wants to make her a traditional woman as a way of controlling her. And there's nothing in her in that for her. Yeah. And the difficulty is there's nothing there's nothing else for her either. I mean, there's no there's no hope in a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and I think Robert and Pedro taken as a duo, and the fact she goes off with him and then she goes off with Pedro, whom she meets with Mike right there at the table with her. I think that's where you really come to understand that her behavior is compulsive. Yeah. You also have seen her earlier with Count, uh, is it Mipopopoulos? I think yeah. is how we say his name. Yeah. Uh, another example of someone who's wounded, and he actually gives a, a great talk about the importance of values. And a lot of the notion of the Hemingway Code comes out of these discussions. That, but it's a, he's also a guy who's willing to pay her 10,000 francs to go on vacation with him. Yep. Yep. So he's got his own he's got his own things. But you bring up the Hemingway Code, and I think that's a very important notion for these for these uh, pseudo these alter egos that Hemingway created. And again, the code is the idea that no matter what the context or situation you are in, you uphold your values. Yeah. And later on, Hemingway would almost become belligerent in presenting heroes that were a that are able to do this. Right. But I think in these earlier novels, you see him with much more nuanced main characters. Well, they're, they're usually failures. Yeah, yeah, they're failures of it. Because yeah. the idea is that, yeah, life is bad and bad things happen to good people all the time. Children get sick. People get blown up. People get killed in war. People die in car wrecks. You have, you know, loved ones leave you. Loved ones turn on you. So what do you do? Do you hide under the bed? Do you go hide in a closet? Or do you do the best you can to bear up? And the question is... Jake says at one point in the novel, and I'm paraphrasing, it's awful easy to be hard boiled about everything during the daytime. It's another thing, you know, in the middle of the night. It's hard, to, you know, it's hard, another thing to do in the night. It's one um, of the greatest lines in the novel. Yeah, there's, it really there, is. There's also a term that I kind of regret that it gets stereotyped in Hemingway, but it was introduced by uh, Dorothy Parker in a 1929 profile of Hemingway called The Artist's Reward, where she speaks about both Hemingway and Hemingway characters exuding grace under pressure. Yeah. And again, the idea, it's a very heroic model. The, I mean, you can, a lot of this, a lot of critics have gone back to, you know, medieval literature to look at analogs of these characters and to try to find some sort of 
idea that what they're undergoing is really no different than than the types of tests that the Knights of the Round Table yeah. might have undergone. The difference is is that they they fail them, and it's a search for it's a search maybe not even for new values, but for the ability to revive values in a way that makes them meaningful. Yeah in a world that has changed. To, to find stability, to find peace, to have your life count for something. Yeah. To back off for a minute, because there are, I think, a couple of bigger things we can dig back into. But to back off for a second and just look at it from a writing standpoint, we have here the stripped down style of the early Hemingway. And people, it's often when they talk about the muscular, sparse prose, as, uh, as some critic famously said, they're really talking about the first two collections of stories yeah. and the first two novels. They're not talking about stuff that comes after the thirties, you know, by, by the mid thirties with snows of Kilimanjaro, he's, he's branching out, he's trying other styles to, and certainly for whom the bell tolls is stylistically a large leap forward and trying on a lot of new things that you don't see, but he's really, again, it, it, there's so much good writing here to kind of small telling to tell. So there's a scene where Brett comes to call on him, and she's dumping the ashes on his carpet. She sees him watching her and she says, can a chap get an ashtray here? Well, she doesn't care about it until he's seeing her. And a lot about Brett there. And also the description of how when she smiles, there are crinkles at the corner of her eyes. And you get, you understand she smiles a lot. She's a lot of fun to be with. They all love her for these reasons, not simply because she's really sexy and somewhat available to some of these men, but also there's also a lot of just gorgeous imagery that yeah. we may not necessarily think of Hemingway being able to capture. But one of my favorite is when he's riding in the cab and they're going up to the Ball Musette and he talks about the acetylene torches yeah. uh, on, the, on the Parisian streets. So there's, it really does give you a sense stylistically of, of Hemingway's ability to create a physical scene. Now, yeah. I would argue that this novel is a little bit different than the short stories, which are much, which can be much more starker. Yeah. If you read Indian Camp or a story like Hills Like White Elephants that comes a few years later, those are novels in which you are essentially, the, the narrative voice is essentially an outward looking camera eye. Yeah. There's very little reflection. There's very little internal apparatus, internal thinking, even if you want to say it that way. But because we have a first person narrator, we get a lot of that here with Jake. And one of the criticisms of novel that's very interesting that came out early on, and I bring it up because of your use of the hard boil quote, is Alan Tate wrote a review of this novel in which he basically accused Hemingway of perpetuating a kind of male sentimentality saying he was not hard-boiled at all, but that he was sort of uh, wrapping himself up in a certain melancholy of loss. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think sentimentality, now that was an awful word to modernists because you know the whole idea of modern literature was you were supposed to completely evacuate your prose of feeling. That's, that's tough to do in reality. Yeah, you could argue only the detective and crime writers did it very yeah, well, yeah. even during that time. And you know. even after that, that becomes so sty- such a stylistic gimmick. I mean, if you look at yeah, if you look at the difference between the early Hemingway stories of in our time and what I consider kind of the arch, really uh, a lot of unrewarding Hemingway stories in his last collection, uh, Winter Take Nothing. You know, there's just a sort of, it feels like the noir element, the hard-boiled becomes 
almost gratuitous. Like there's yeah. a refusal to deal with emotion in there. So I, f- I find Jake a very admirable character. I mean, I do too. He's he's a flawed guy, but who among us isn't? And I think his sentimentality is a desire for what what could be if circumstances were different. I mean, that's the whole appeal of the end of the novel is, isn't it, isn't it pretty to think so? I think so much of great narrative art dwells in the only word to describe it is bittersweetness. Yeah, exactly. You can think of favorite pop songs and I'm not talking about the hard, fast rock song that gets your blood pumping and you're driving down the road really fast and you're young and alive, you know, uh, born to run or whatever by Springsteen. Instead, think of something like Thunder Road by him or so many Dylan, so many other great works of art where it's Bobby Jean. If yeah, you remember that one, absolutely. Uh, you know, maybe you're out there on that road somewhere and you yeah. hear my name and think of, I'll think of you and just say, I miss you. Good yeah. luck. Goodbye. Yeah. Where's Roy Orbison without bittersweetness? Where's yeah, Bob exactly. Dylan without bittersweetness? I mean, um, it's just, uh, it's you know, a, tangled up in blue. It's a wonderful sentiment. Yeah. And, and I think that's what he nails throughout the book. And that's why I think the ending is so yeah. to me, perfect. It, but also throughout the book is humor. So one of my, one of my favorite characters in all of Hemingway is his friend, Bill Garton. Yeah. And he's an important part because it seems early on that everyone involved in the war is wounded and you're unwounded people. You have two extremes. You have Robert Cohn never goes to war and he's over here and you have Pedro Romero. Well, Spain wasn't part of World War One, and he's over here. Well, Bill goes to war, but comes back more or less whole. Now, how much of a drunk he is, is always up for debate, whether this is Bill on vacation or who Bill is, like who Brett and Mike are, is up for debate. But it seems like it's just him on vacation and he's come through intact. So the novel isn't saying everyone who was involved in the war has been destroyed, but a lot of them have been wrecked. And how do they find their way back? But Bill brings in so much humor, like when they find the taxidermist walking around Paris and he says, here's a taxidermist. Want to buy anything? Nice stuffed dog. Come on. I said, you're pie eyed. Pretty nice stuffed dogs, Bill said. Certainly brighten up your flat. Come on. Just one stuffed dog. I can take him or leave him alone. But listen, Jake, just one stuffed dog. Come on. Mean everything in the world to you after you bought it. Simple exchange of values. You give them money, they give you a stuffed dog. We'll get one on the way back. All right. Have your own way. Road to hell paid with them. Bought stuffed dogs. Not my fault. And then, of course, we have a series of jokes throughout it. And later, the when Bill goes into the comedic riffs, when he's shaving about it's where the Mencken and, and Henry James. Yeah, stuff comes up, and there's a lot of humor of a wry, realistic sort throughout the novel. It's not comedic in the way a Twain is, but yeah, it's not the humor Hemingway himself was necessarily known for. We should mention that Bill Gordon was based on a guy who pops up in a lot of these modernist memoirs named Donald Ogden Stewart. And he was a comedic writer. He was a parodist and a satirist, uh, had a great career later on as a Hollywood screenwriter, is generally considered the most among the most stable of this generation. Yeah. And probably because he had this kind of comedic, humorist outlook on, on life. And I think that's what comes through with Bill. 
and he'd come and visit and then leave. He wouldn't he didn't yeah, live his life yeah. with these guys. Yeah. But he also, he had this uh, sort of attitude where whatever tragedy was happening, he could kind of find uh, some, some, some sort of humorous gold out of the situation as a way of coping. Right. right. And, and again, Bill, Bill represents, I think, a way that the, uh, an outlook that the other characters are, are not incapable of. He, he is of. probably the most grounded character for in sure. the book. I mean, he pays his bills. He, you know, he's out for adventure. He also picks up that Jake is in love with Brett yeah. in a way that Mike pretends like he doesn't know, although clearly he would have to. And Robert Cohn never does. Yeah. Well, Robert, Robert only sees himself. Acknowledge it. Yeah. Right. Isn't uh, Stuart kind of merged with Hemingway's uh, teenage friend uh, Bill Smith? Bill Smith. Yeah. 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 So you have a kind of amalgamation of the two: the fishing buddy, yeah. old, old, longtime connection to Bill Smith, merged with the uh, humorous affect and the successful writing acumen of, of Stuart as well. So when we think of all that, you you said earlier. One of the things that's going on that's so interesting in the book, and this is returning to some of the deeper themes, and this is where some writers later, one of the things for a secular novel that's not written particularly as part of a the genre of Christian lit, quote unquote, there's a lot of praying that goes on in this novel, yep. given no one's a priest or a nun or a you know, church father. What's well, that effort to find a ritual that works? And, and And for Jake, you know, he's kind of, as much as he feels he's not good at it, he's able to find a bit of peace at times in these churches and going in, but it never works for Brett. Yeah. They turn her away. She doesn't have a headpiece on in one place. Another time she stiffens up while he's praying and she says, I've got the wrong sort of face for it, meaning yeah. for religion. And even when she tries to dance in the kind of pagan row-row dance, they don't want her to be part of it. She's at the center of it as they all spin around her, which is a nice little metaphor for the whole fiesta regarding Jake and his friends as they're yeah. all circling around Brett. And from a from a feminist point of view, they're trying to objectify her into what each of them wants them to be. You know, Brett, as his one true love, will be with him. I mean, Jake, for as his one true love, will be with him forever. Pedro is a traditional girl who's going to go home and marry him. You know, Robert, who's, you know, he's he's had a conqueror and it's going to be true love this time. And None of them can kind of see what's healthy for her. It's always about what they want. And the thing that I find interesting when when Cone cracks a joke that Mike appreciates, she turns men into swine. When a Brett doesn't make anyone chase her, she doesn't knock down and sleep with anyone forcibly. Every yeah. one of these guys is a willing participant. And it's funny how they and so many critics blame her when she's clearly as much a victim of the war and yeah. What's going on is Jake is. It's just her wounds are interior, not exterior. Yeah. She she gets it as bad as Daisy Buchanan and the Great yeah. Gatsby, I think. And maybe yeah. even Daisy Miller. It's it's kind of reflective of our own misogyny, I think, that so many decades of male critics really could not understand or have any it, have any empathy for her. Yeah. Anyone who reads Daisy Miller and thinks that she's the problem and not Winterborn and his, or really the Mrs. Costello and Mrs. Walker in that crowd yeah. uh, needs to have their reading card revoked and start over again with Curious George. Yeah. When, when you talk about rituals, that's one of the things that I would also emphasize about the, the ending of the novel before, after they leave Pamplona, but before Jake races to Madrid to rescue Brett once again, a lot of readers always ask, well, why does he go through the seven or eight pages where we basically read yeah. about him getting up every day and going swimming and exercising. And 
I, I mean, we're taping this right on the cusp of 2022 when people are sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to start January 1 and get my life in <laughs> order with these resolutions and I'm not going to do this and I'm going to exercise and I'm going to eat right and I'm going to control my behavior. And what you see in those, it is for for this novel, a fairly lengthy recounting of what he does yeah. for a couple days. And the swimming. Um, but it's a it's a search for structure and routine. Yeah. And in those routines, we find the security by which we control our life. Right. And that's him recuperating yeah. from the from the indulgence of the fiesta. When they go up into the mountains, of course, they see Ronsvall. Yeah. And that's where Roland and uh, the song of Roland holds off the uh, Saracen horde and blows the silver horn and right. saves Christendom from the in, the oncoming uh, Islamic threat. Yeah. Um, and so it's a holy place. And, and again, we have that notion of faith and austerity, but it's also, there's a monastery up there. It's a place you can go to be away from, from women, to be away from, and from people interfering with them. Worldly indulgence or worldly temptation. Of course, in there's so much of an impact of the wasteland on early Hemingway. And so yeah. anytime you're fishing, we're thinking of the, the myth of the, the Fisher, Fisher King. King and how we're supposed to be bringing life and peace and prosperity. And you get that when he can be away from all this other stuff, but he returns back to the fiesta and it really gets cracking. So again, he retreats into down on the, on the beach. He's not really gone away to nature, but he does lose himself in the ocean. And you always have to ask yourself repeated plunging into water. Is that, just swimming, or are we supposed to be thinking baptism and washing away? Rebirth. You and I are, are pretty willing to wash away 2020 and 2021 <laughs> here as we you know take this the last couple of days of 2021 and move on to something new. So I think it's exactly what you're saying. And I do think it's important because in our last episode, we talked about Huck Finn and how he doesn't learn his lesson regarding Tom Sawyer and society until the very end. And Tom Sawyer wants him to have a big parade when they rescue Jim and Huck says, I guess it's about as well the way it was. He finally learned his lesson. And I think part of the bittersweetness in his novel is that although he still loves Brett and he's still going to be there for her, he has kind of learned his lesson. Mm -hmm. And I love how Brett, when she sends her telegraph, she's paying by the letter. She still says, I'm rather in trouble, yeah. not need help. Or, you know, I'm rather in trouble. And my students, if I tell them to imagine a British actress reading these lines, their opinion of Brett's dialogue changes drastically. If I tell them, okay, in our readings today, Brett Ashley is played by the part of Kira Knightley. They completely change how they see her character and the use of chaps and rather yeah. and stuff like that. They suddenly like it a lot more than they did. But she sends that, he sends a telegraph back and he says, that seemed to handle it. That was it. Send the girl off with one man, introduce her to another to go off with him. Now go and bring her back. Signed the wire of love. That was it. All right. I went to lunch. And then, of course, at the very end, he drinks and he drinks and he drinks. He's not been much of a drunk the whole novel. He's had a few moments compared yeah. to the other characters. At this point, he seems willing to catch up. And it seems like he's just having to make peace of where they are now. So here they are. They're in the taxi. It's a mirror image of when they first ride together and they're thrust together. At the beginning of the novel, a surge in traffic. She's against him again. And she says, and she's just told him, you know, she's decided not to be a bitch and all that. And she finally says to him, oh, Jake, Brett said, we could have had such a damn good time together. The car slowed, suddenly pressing Brett against me. Yes, I said, isn't it pretty to think so? And Robert Trogdon lately has shown that 
in the way that most of us read it with a period and not with the question mark. Question that mark. is the actual text yeah. that it's supposed to be a period there, not a question mark. Yeah, I think there is a recognition on Jake's part that he's got to, in a sense, he'll always be there for for Brett, but he also understands that he can't put himself in this position again yep. of, of allowing himself to violate his own values. So I do mm-hmm. think he grows at the end. Whenever we do these novels, I always like to say, well, where is this character five years later? And the reality is, is that many of those expatriates who went there, who lived a life of indulgence, there seemed to be two extremes afterwards. Some of them came back and lived perfectly normal, productive lives. One of the characters that is mocked in the book as Robert Prentice was a novelist named Glenn Way Westcott, and he lived a long, productive career as a, as a, as a writer. Harold Loeb kind of disappeared into uh, obscurity for many years, but he lived a long a long life. Uh, I think I think left literature for many years and worked in finance, if I'm not mistaken, if I don't misremember that. But there were the others that cracked up abroad and never yeah. really pulled it together. There's the famous story of uh, one of the characters that Hemingway refers to here is, uh, I believe in the novel, is it Harvey Stone? Right. He sits at the select and he's got all the uh, coasters under him as a sign of his dissipation. Well, that's a reference to a guy named Harold Stearns who came back and never really could pull it together and died yeah. relatively young age. And the other is uh, probably the most famous case is an expatriate, a, war v- a veteran named Harry Crosby, who went in Paris and got involved in all sorts of occult things and ended up shooting himself in the head. And so there is a sense that this this test of can you go to the edge and have your value system fall apart and can you come back and find that Fisher King sort of uh, rejuvenation, come through it on the better side for the experience is absolutely uh, central. I do think that Jake Barnes down the line would come back to America and have, have a career in American journalism. Yeah. Or, or even successful in staying in, in Paris until, yeah. you know, at least till the Nazis get there. Yeah. Yeah. In the reviews for this, we should briefly mention, we we're going to talk about before, but I think we, we skipped over it. The reviews for this were very good. This was a best-selling novel. It was written very highly. Uh, obviously his mother did not care for it. Yeah. And, and again, like you said, it, to me, that's one of the things that's, pretty telling about Grace Hemingway's outlook on life and controlling nature that she couldn't just be positive. She has to see it as a, you know, something that made her angry. It's being written in the New York times as one of the best novels of the, uh, of the year. And yet on the other hand, she's embarrassed by it. Yeah. So uh, it, it was very favorably reviewed. It catapulted him to a certain level of literary fame, both abroad and the United States. It cemented his career. It was very clear. Everything he wrote after that would be published. And uh, he didn't make a lot of money off of it because he'd left his wife and he had signed over the money to her. But, but it made it, him famous. And that's, it made him famous and got everything else published yeah. for money. And uh, I think it established him as, in many ways, the reluctantly, but many ways, the voice of his generation. He never yeah. pursued that identity as a generational spokesman in the way that Fitzgerald did. But right. You know, I think there was an, an uh, a, there's generally an acknowledgement that if we're going to talk about the greatest post World War One 
novels, you know, the ones that really capture that period of time, The Sun Also Rises is at the top of the list. There's no shortage of expatriate novels from that era, but many of those other ones don't have that bittersweetness right. that, that, you're ref- that you're referring to. So Kirk, let me ask you, you've published books on Hemingway. You're a member of the board with Hemingway. You're one of the reviewers. Uh, you're on the uh, review board for the Hemingway Journal. Let me ask you, where does this rank among your favorite Hemingway books? So I say books, so it can include the books of short stories as well. I would say for me personally, it's probably number one. I think that I think there is a general acknowledgement amongst most critics that this is probably his best novel. You know, in the in the culture, there it tends to fluctuate between the big four. This one, Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man in the Sea. And it really depends on what you want out of the moment. You mentioned For Whom the Bell Tolls. Well, that has had a resurgence in the last few years, in part because of what it meant to John McCain. That brought people- And Obama. Yeah. Yeah. To a certain nostalgia about what Robert Jordan stood stands for in that novel. This novel is much more pessimistic, I think, in a lot of ways- And so it kind of just depends what at a certain moment the culture wants out of Hemingway, apart from what he represents as a, as a sort of icon on his own. But I think it's his, I think it's his, you know, he, he was honestly a much better short story writer than a novelist. So out of all of the novels, this one is the one that to me seems to have the most cohesion and where his style is new enough, this style is new enough that it doesn't be, that the ticks that he picked up from Gertrude Stein, like the repetition and that he got from Ezra Pound about using the, the precise word, right. don't, don't become, don't feel like gimmicks. That's really what happens beginning with A Farewell to Arms on is that those those devices tend to call attention to themselves and become very stylized. Yeah, I, I'm with you. This is, I think there are a lot of Hemingway people who love, who think of A Farewell to Arms as the best. But for me, this is, this is the one, it's the one I've related to. It's the one that pulled me in and made me lifelong aficionado as well as a, a fan. So we always ask about our criteria. Is it, a, it's by an American, is it American enough? Does it have American enough themes? You know, that's really a good question because he never really articulates this as a conflict between Europe and America in the way that we are used to in expatriate novels. But I do think the fact that historically what we're talking about is a, an, an unwillingness of the moderns to accept the essential puritanism or conservatism of America yeah. really, really creates within it an idea of what does it mean to, there's a f- phrase from a movie that defined our generation 30 years ago called slacker, which is <laughs> withdraw and disgust is not the same as apathy. Yeah. And that's what I think of when I think of this novel is that, you know, expatriates were not, they just weren't willing to, to participate in that sort of cultural repression of prohibition or yeah. the sort of phony puritanism that came about in the early yeah. 20s. Well, and censorship and not yeah. publishing books that used the wrong words and not, right. or had wrong themes even. 
So I, I do think it's an American in the sense that it asks what, I mean, there's an effort very subtle to define many of those values as American. Yeah. The idea of, of the, you know, the American modesty, the American thrift, American industry, the emphasis on work. Yeah. All of those traditional values, I think, are, they're never really strictly defined as American, but they're in there because Jake Barnes is an American. Yeah. And it's heft, it's scope, it's depth. To me, it has so much to say. I mean, it is, when it's all said and done, if you're asking someone, define the 20s and where young people are in the 20s in the post-war era. If you're asking everyone in the world to pick the books, it really comes down to this and The Great Gatsby, I think, yeah, are the two most people pick. So I think it does have the scope and depth because of that bittersweetness, because of the you can read it as a kind of failed romance at one level. And then the deeper you dig with the, again, the uh, kind of Roman Catholic religious symbolism, you know, with Roland and the churches, all these things uh, going on and with the bullfight and with all this, there's so much going on. And you and I barely just scrape the surface in a way as we do in these podcasts. And I think we're both very much agreed in its durability. We're only a few years short of it being a hundred years old. Yeah. Very clearly it is durable. There's, there's an inexhaustible interest in it. And I think yeah. a lot of that, again, has to do with the fact that we can go to Paris and we can go to the Dingo Bar where Hemingway would hang out with Duff Twisden and, and Pat Guthrie and Jimmy the Barman. And it's right there. Now it's yeah. an Italian restaurant, but yeah. it's still there, as are the other very specific places. You yeah. can st- the running of the bulls would not be the sort of international event that it is if it weren't for this novel. Absolutely. And finally, it is a significant artistic accomplishment. I don't think it's, yes. I think it has a serious aesthetic value. I think the, the way 20th century literature works is different because of Hemingway. Uh, as much as Twain had this great impact and Faulkner had this great impact, the the other one is, is Hemingway. And you don't have the evolution of the the various popular writers. And again, we talked about Salinger and all those books we talked about that came out of the wake eventually of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Well, this novel is the touchstone that really the, the springboard from Huck Finn to this, to everything else. Yeah. Or at least Hemingway's early writing, I should say. I have never heard any creative writer say, I find myself writing. When I when I write, I don't hear me, I hear F. Scott Fitzgerald. But I do hear a creative writer say, when I write, I hear more Hemingway than I hear myself. I mean, there's, there's the influence of the idea of the minimalism is just so profound and almost so unavoidable. Yeah. I mean, it, it was very difficult for emerging writers all the way from the late 20s on up into the 50s to not sound like Hemingway. Yeah. And the only way that they were able to get away from it for the generation of uh, folks like Thomas Pynchon was to go the opposite direction and become maximalists. Right. And sound like Faulkner. <laughs> the, uh, well, it's the old anxiety of influence, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Harold Bloom's famous theoretical book from the 50s, where you have to kind of dig in and be the apprentice, be in a feed before you kind of master it and become your own writer. And, and you, you do see, it, again, it just shows up everywhere. Yeah. Well, usually we end our episodes of Cannon Fodder, discussion of a book that we think should be promoted into uh, its worthy discussion in a canonical way. But we're going to do something a little different because 
there's a, a recent passing in the Hemingway community here lately, and it reminded us of someone who died at the very end of last year as well. And so the first of these, who's now been gone for about a year, is Scott Donaldson. Will you talk a little bit about him, Kirk, and just what he meant for Hemingway sure. Studies? Well, Scott was uh, one of the foremost literary biographers uh, working in this period. He was an amazing guy. I think one of the signs of how dedicated he was, was he was most prolific in his 70s and 80s. And when he passed away, he was 92, I believe, and was really in so many ways a role model for us, I think, as scholars. Very uh, Came out of a journalistic background like Hemingway, and but was very scholarly in his uh, awareness of research and he has a great book called The Impossible Craft, where he talks about its essays on literary biography and the challenges of doing those. Everything from uh, competing against other biographers to dealing with to dealing with literary estates, but also just challenges in ferreting through contradictory information. So Scott was very prolific. I, uh, one of his last books was a really a sort of micro deconstruction of the myth of the lost suitcase, Hemingway's huh. lost suitcase in December 1922, which, you know, according to mythology, uh, uh, all of his works, including a kind of Ur version of The Sun Also Rises, an attempted a generational novel, were stolen in a briefcase that his first wife sort of left unguarded. And he goes through and he, he really... Uh, takes that myth apart in a lot of ways and shows how Hemingway used it in in order to build a sense of his own career. So just a phenomenal scholar, very prolific. The other loss we just recently suffered this week was the passing at a a relatively young age of of only uh, late 70s. uh, It was was 80. 80. Recently turned turned 80. 80, Named Harry Stoneback. We knew him as Stoney Stoneback. And just really honestly... The type of scholar that I don't think think we'll see in the future. Very much a personality in the best sense of the word. Yep. Very warm, gregarious, towering sort of figure. You know, was known for uh, staging sing-alongs and poetry readings at all of our conventions, but was also one of the preeminent Sun Also Rises uh, scholars. He wrote the reader's guide to this novel that is absolutely, I think, a required reference material. If you want to, if there are allusions or references that you don't understand in the book, uh, you go and get this. He also was probably one of the most uh, insistent scholars on recognizing the rituals and tracing it to the history of rituals that are evoked in the novel. So um, again, two towering figures, I think two types of scholars that the historical conditions you and I operate under probably would not let us see again as much as we would want to. Right. And we, we should also point out with both of them that they had long time careers at small colleges. Yep. And in those careers, they were incredibly generous to many, many students and yep. young scholars following in their wake and an awful lot of people that you'll read in the pages of Hemingway review, the, uh, the, the Scott Fitzgerald review, uh, uh, these, these journals kind of came along under the tutelage, populated, uh, uh, you know, again, the love of writers like Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Faulkner and so on, all these great writers of the American modernist era. The, these guys helped do a lot. Stoney also really brought back the 
almost forgotten Kentucky writer, Elizabeth Maddox Roberts, mm-hmm. and it almost single-handedly created a resurgence in her interest in her career. And if you're looking for a great book to read and an interesting author to dig into, she'd be a place to start as well. And who knows, maybe even we'll show up in some future Cannon Fodder episode. But uh, we thank you for listening. Before we go, Kirk, we tell them about our next novel. Well, this is the end of season one. So when we start with our next episode, we will be kicking off season two. And we thought we would go a completely different direction and look at a novel that is our most recent novel that we feel uh, approaches the uh, status of a great American novel dates back to only 17 years ago. I mean, I think I have books out of the library longer than this (laughs) novel has been around, but we're going to look at Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Thank you for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you are so inclined, we would appreciate if you'd leave a review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others such as Master of the Forty with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Reading McCarthy with myself and various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email us at Great American Novel Podcast at gmail.com. We thank you for listening. Yeah.